Christ Community Church is called by the God of all grace for the transforming of life in Middle Tennessee, spiritually, socially, and culturally. Through the power of the gospel, from Franklin to the nations of the world, all for the glory of God. For more information, visit ChristCommunity.org. Good morning, church. I'm Pastor Randy Lovelace, and I serve here as lead pastor, and I want to welcome all of you who are visiting with us, all who are regular attenders and members here. It is great to be with you this morning and to proclaim together, we exalt thee. We exalt thee. We exalt thee, O Lord, for he is worthy of our praise. And we are in desperate need of him. I want to welcome you who are joining us on the live stream this morning. We're glad that you're here with us as we continue, as we get close to ending this series, Love Refracted, as we examine the work of the Holy Spirit in producing the fruit of the Spirit in the life of the believer. What does true Christianity look like? What does it look like to be a follower and a disciple of Jesus depending on the work of the Holy Spirit to make us more like him. This morning, as we have each Sunday morning, we take the opportunity to read together responsively the guiding passage for us, which is Galatians chapter five, which is on the screens before you. And so before we release the small saints, we take the opportunity to have them join us as we together recite these verses from Galatians chapter five. I begin as you respond. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Thanks be to God. This is his word. Let me take this opportunity to invite our children who participate in our small saints to be excused to that time, following our fearless leader, Alex Ayers, as she leads them this morning. And as they do so, let's go to the Lord this morning, and let's go to him in prayer as we pray not only for the word this morning, but as we also ask that the Lord will prepare our hearts to hear how love refracts itself in the heart of the believer in self-control. Will you join me in prayer? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We have prayed and we have sung, and in our singing we have confessed, so we exalt you. Father, we pray for our children who participate in small saints and their leaders. We ask, Lord, that you would ignite in their hearts a love for you as they exalt you. But may you shape their hearts, may you shape their lives to reflect you and their Savior, Jesus. But as we continue in this time this morning, Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, 
from whom the Spirit flows, from the Father and the Son. Come, Holy Spirit. Teach us. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And so now, Lord, shape us. Help the teacher. In Jesus' name, amen. The word that is used in Galatians chapter 5, which is translated as self-control, only appears in one other place in the New Testament, but it is a theme, it is a characteristic of the life of the believer that appears in several ways, which is why in our different interpretations uh, within or different translations of the Bible, we have in the NIV as well as the ESV, the places where self-discipline or discipline Uh, is translated, all pointing back to this same idea. And this morning, our companion passage is from the letter that Paul wrote to Titus. And hear now God's word, Titus chapter 1, verses 11 and following. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as we look at God's word this morning at the fruit of self-discipline, we're going to look at it in several ways. First, I want you to hear the reality this passage points us to at the beginning is our weakness. Secondly, our calling. Thirdly, his grace. Our weakness, our calling, his grace. Our weakness, in the opening verse, Chapter, or verse, chapter 1, verse 11, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. What is Paul referring to there? This is a biblical theme that stretches from the early chapters of Genesis all the way to the close of the Scriptures. The reality that is always pointed out to us is our weakness, and that weakness is the brokenness of our human nature. True Christianity teaches the following. Please understand what I just said. True Christianity, not everything that falls under the moniker of Christianity is often true in what it teaches. But true Christianity teaches that which the scriptures teach, which is simply this. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. In other words, it's not our actions, it is not our choices or decisions that suddenly make us sinners and broken in our human nature. Rather, it is the other way around. Our nature is broken because human nature is broken because of the sin of our first parents. Therefore, our actions, our decisions, our desires... All of it that makes us who we are is fundamentally broken because our human nature is broken because of sin has entered the world. Simply put, our weakness points us to the human problem that our nature 
is broken. And so therefore, as Matthew McConaughey would say in the series True Detective, playing a detective and they were investigating him about um, his investigation and sort of interrogative ways of doing things as a detective, he says very simply, everyone is guilty. We all want to confess, but some of us veil it around all kinds of cathartic narratives, but he says, we're all guilty. This for Paul is where he starts. He does not start with imperative. He starts with indicative. What is true about us? Our weakness is simply that. The challenge becomes how we respond to that weakness. For even before I was a believer, though I would have rejected everything that I just said, I knew fundamentally something was broken inside of me, though I could not name it, I could not understand it, but I knew I was trying to get around it. And the problem with our broken nature, the problem with our weakness is our efforts at self-salvation. Because inherently, as the scriptures teach, that the law of God, the holiness of God, who he is in his character and the truth of his word is actually written, imprinted on the human heart. But we reject it. And so in rejecting it, we try to do one of two things in our efforts at self-salvation. We either deny that God is that holy or we acknowledge that holiness and we are we are clothed with shame and guilt and therefore we try to prove ourselves and prove to God that we are righteous enough for his love. Everyone in this room in some way, shape, or form in their life ends up choosing one of these two things. Even those who call on the name of Jesus are tempted to fall off on one side of the horse or the other. We are either trying to prove to God our righteousness or we can't, we can't take the fact that he's so holy and we are so not that I don't know what to do with it. So I either reframe his holiness as he doesn't care that much or I care enough, I'm gonna to try to prove myself to you. These are all means of self-salvation. They are, in the words of Dr. Timothy Keller, they are all ways of avoiding Jesus. So when Paul says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness, meaning that there is a grace that we need outside of ourselves. Grace is undeserved pleasure and love and goodness towards us. It is undeserved. It is unmerited favor. This grace has come from outside of us because it is the only thing that can truly rescue us, redeem us, not ourselves, but Christ alone. But therein again, we we run aground because of our brokenness and our, our humanness, our sinfulness, is that we also don't know what to do with that grace. And what we end up doing with that grace is in trying to focus on our own self-righteousness, we deny our need of that grace, 
Or we simply say that God's grace is so gracious that it doesn't matter how I live because I'm going to be forgiven. This is the age old human pattern. God doesn't care that much. And so we turn it into cheap grace. Or we believe that God's grace is so beautiful that we cannot look at it. I'm still gonna try to dress myself up before God and before other Christians. And what we end up doing is what David Wells would say in many of his writings in various ways, it is these words, the effect of our denying the grace and the holiness of God in the midst of our brokenness to sin is that we turn God into a weightless God who's neither worthy of our praise or our worship and we don't believe that we need him. Therefore, he becomes weightless. And in the words, and if you will, summing up some of what Ezekiel says, when we deny who God is and we deny who we are, in turning him into a weightless God, we open ourselves up to all forms of idolatry and self-salvation. For when Paul says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us, what is training us? It is that grace. The question is, can we hear the song of grace in the fruit of the Spirit? Because what he then turns to is the calling. If the grace has come from the outside, rescuing us from self-salvation, if the love of Christ has come into the human heart, producing the fruit of the Spirit, we get to this one, it's the last one. It's the most individualistic of all of the fruit but it is never meant to simply be experienced as an individual. We are to practice self-discipline, self-regulation, but always within the community of other believers. But as we consider this, what is this calling when he says to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright lives in this present age? To understand the calling, I want to start where Calvin did. John Calvin, the great reformed theologian in his Institutes of Christian Religion begins with this reality and this truth. To know God is to know yourself. The first process of practicing self-discipline aided by the Holy Spirit is to ask that the Holy Spirit reveal who we are to ourselves. So therefore, how are you doing in your pursuit of a PhD on yourself? Not on other people, but on yourself. Are you aware of the desires that you brought into the room this morning? Are you aware of the pride that often lurks underneath? We say what we love, but then we often in our actions show that our loves are going in opposite direction. Do we know what our desires, our loves, our passions are daydreaming? Are we aware of what's happening inside of us? Do you know who you are? We, if we don't know who we are, we don't know where to start asking that the Holy Spirit help us by the grace of God in self-discipline against any desire, any action or decision that leads us away from who Christ is and who he would want us to be. 
And so this idea of self-understanding begins also in the words of James when he says in chapter one, verses 14 to 15, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So when he says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, the reason things on the outside seem so alluring and we want to give ourselves to them, it is because a desire has been awakened in us. Do you know your own desires? I encourage you to become a PhD on your own heart, aided by the Holy Spirit, asking God on your knees, hands open, crying if necessary, Lord, teach me about myself that I may know what is happening behind my own self-deception, the things I try to project to the world, what is happening. But secondly, when he says here, we're to give ourselves to self-discipline, this is a, another Pauline uh, teaching that he says in several ways throughout his letters, but said simply, it is a way in which we follow a plan, a systematic way of giving ourselves to the word of God and to Christ himself by his spirit, saying, help me by your love and this grace which has been given. Help me to say no to any desire, decision, or practice that does not give you glory or build up another person or does not point me into the direction of looking more like you as my redeemer. Self-discipline begins by asking that God would demonstrate ways and practices, habits, addictions, desires, and then to say, now I ask you, Lord God, help me to say no to them. This is all an individual calling, but within a community of believers, I encourage you, if you're a part of a connect group, find someone in that connect group who can walk alongside you to pray with and for you, someone with whom you can share, this is what I'm learning, and I don't like what I see, and I'm fearful, I can't say no. Each of us has this individual calling, but within the community of believers. But more than that, when Paul would write in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, all things are lawful for me, this is what was being taught in Corinth at the time, that what we're really meant for is liberty. And he says, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, yes, but I will not be dominated by anything. In the process of asking that God, by his grace and the gift of his spirit, which is given to the disciple, to the believer, we can ask the question simply, Lord, is there anything in my life that I have given myself over to that has become my master? Now, for Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, as well in other places, it was sexual desire. It, was what we, it is what we eat. It is our speech 
things that we watch, places that we go. And because we are broken in our very nature, the very chemistry of what makes us who we are as human beings, these practices, these habits, these desires, these things that we do are not neutral. They actually impact our brain chemistry, our bodies, and that which we give ourselves to teaches our brains as well as our loves and our hearts to love a certain end, a telos, a goal. And that goal is either looking more like Jesus or not. But the Holy Spirit, as we ask for self-discipline, is make me aware of the ways in which I'm giving myself to these practices and rescue me through new practices, through new ways, by your grace and strength to say no. And when we give ourselves to the word in a new practice, in a renewed way, asking that the Spirit would help us to think Jesus' thoughts after him, as we pray and as we give ourselves to the means of grace, to worship, to prayer, to singing, to the celebration of the supper, we should ask that the Holy Spirit help reshape, reorient our very chemistry of what it means to be a human. Because these practices are also completely embodied practices. When we pray, when we read the word, when we seek to remind ourselves of the promises of God, these are all practices that are not just reorienting our loves and our hearts. I believe, as neuroscientists have shown, the practices that we give ourselves to actually changes the functional pathways of our thinking in our brains. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, it's not just saying no, it is also learning the ways that the Spirit would guide us to be more like Christ, to desire the things he would desire, to love the things that he loves. In 1 Corinthians chapter nine, he says, do you not know that in a race all runners run? but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. So they do it to receive the perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as if I was beating the air. No, I discipline my body, keeping it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. I hear this not only as a disciple, I hear this as a, as a fellow preacher. The weight of this calling to give myself and to give ourselves to the Spirit is like an athlete. I have absolutely nothing in and of myself to give you. I can only give you the promises of the word and the spirit that is training me and has trained me and will continue until Christ comes again or I go to be with him first to say no to that which so easily entangles my hearts and my desires. 
But I recognize that my life, if I do not give myself over to the work of the Spirit and to the Word, I may disqualify myself as a preacher, as a teacher of the Word, because my, wife, my life will not look like and reflect the very Christ that I preach. So I say to you, as a fellow weak, sinful human being, there is no other path than to simply begin and to say, Lord Jesus, what ways are mastering me? What desires are lurking underneath? What habits or places do I go to to save myself? I need your grace to retrain me that I might follow the plan of resting in your promises and in the righteousness and grace of Jesus. I need this reminding every day, just as my cycling coach said to me several years ago in in much more colorful language. (laughs) FTP, follow the plan. There was another word in there, but I'll I'll leave that to your imagination. Follow the plan. And his plan for me was so boring, so unremarkable, I was so convinced that I knew better than he did. And every time I would send and upload my workout, he would look at it and go, (laughs) why did your heart rate go above 150, Randy? And he'd say it again, I don't care if you have to get off your bike and walk up that hill. If your heartbeat goes above 150, then I will fire you as my client. Follow the plan. Now, gratefully, He was gracious, but God is even more so. He gives us the plan, and it has various ways in which it is applied, but summed up, it is giving ourselves to the Holy Spirit and to the Word and to the promises of Christ and say, Lord, help me, forgive me, have mercy on me, for I am a sinner. Finally, his grace. When Paul says here in his letter, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The beauty is this. (laughs) His grace is sufficient in the midst of our inability to turn ourselves over to him. Until he returns, this will continue to be the battle. And we need to avoid two errors that his grace calls us to avoid. One is an over-realized eschatology, an over-realized promise in this life. No matter how mature we might become as believers, if you profess faith in him, we will always carry this body of death, our broken nature, our sin nature in us. 
His grace is sufficient. And His grace forgives. But the other side is also true, that His grace calls us to avoid an underestimated grace. Where we just say, this is who I am. I'm not going to change. I'm just going to be who I am before God. But what we see is, why yes, that is the case. We are to present ourselves in who we are and our own ways and our own sinful patterns. This is true, but God simply does not say, well, there's nothing else I can do. He actually seeks to, by his grace and spirit, to make us more and more like him until we go to be with him. We are not a fixed entity, incapable of change, because his grace has come as far as the curse is found, that while we may not know ultimate victory, we may not be able to experience perfection by any means on this side of the appearing of Jesus, we nonetheless can begin to experience the already and even know that we live in the not yet. His grace is sufficient. His grace can retrain us. His spirit can give us the power to do things that we in and of our flesh cannot do on our own. And by God's grace and his mercy, he will carry us to the end. As Paul says, as he finishes the letter, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. A righteousness of God has appeared in Jesus Christ. This grace has come from the outside in the body of Christ, who's given himself for us on the cross and victory over sin and death, and has given us his spirit, and has given us the grace, and has given us the promise, and has given us the mercy to know him and new life through self-discipline aided by his power until he comes again. May we recognize and receive this, acknowledge our doubt, and Holy Spirit, help us in our unbelief. May we receive your grace and mercy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would now enable us to receive the promises of the Holy Spirit, to receive the love of God in the gift of self-discipline, not in and of ourselves, but a righteousness that has come to us, a strength from the outside that enables us to say no to ungodliness. But even in our living and obedient life before you, we'll never earn one ounce of merit before you. Thanks be to God because Christ is all and in all, and his righteousness is enough. Help us in our brokenness by your grace, through the power of the Spirit, training us until you come again. 
In Jesus' name, amen.